You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. The word of God. Well, when um, Christians would read the Bible historically, they would read it one particular way, and we've sort of changed how we read it today, and we need to be careful about doing so. Um, If you're in the Bible studies I lead during the week, this is a little bit of review, but there's, as I see it, about three basic ways that people look at the Bible. The way we used to read it was the idea through the lens of the gospel. The gospel being that there is a God who has created everything, that it was the creator God from the book of Genesis, and it didn't take long for us to come along and to mess everything up. And sin enters the world, and even then, right after that, God promises that the Messiah would one day come to pay for the sin that they just committed. And then you see the Old Testament people following God and crying out to God, where's the Messiah, where's the Messiah? And then finally, Jesus Christ comes, Jesus Christ lives this perfect life, scandalously has to go to the cross. The perfect one goes to the cross to die. He dies and he's buried for three days. He rises from the grave and he ascends to go be with his heavenly father where he awaits us, the followers of him. That's the great news of the gospel. And the even better news is that even though we deserve the judgment and the wrath of God, uh, because of what Jesus did, we put actual faith, or the word really should probably be better translated, trust. We put our trust in Jesus. We put our trust in what he has done. And you put your trust in what he has done. And if we have actual, genuine faith, what we'll see today is it always, always, always manifests itself through obedience to him and works in honor and glory of him. That's what he's talking about today. That's what the Bible actually talks about. And that is good news. And so when you read this text, if you read it through that lens, you'll see one thing, or you could read it the way we have changed how we read it, that is dangerous. How do we see the Bible today? Well, depending on when you grew up and where you grew up and all sorts of things, there was a phase we went through that said um, we'd read it through the lens of morality. We read it through the lens of just being good. Like the only call in the whole thing is to be good. So Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do what I tell you? And so you'd come to church and someone would get up and go, why don't we do what God says? You should, you should, you should. And you know who loved that? Parents. Because they could bring their kid and go, I'll let the pastor yell at you a little bit, and that'll get you in line to do the things that I want you to do. And so we had a generation, and again, depending on where you lived and when you lived, that grew up thinking that their eternal salvation rested on how good or bad they are. So we also had a generation grow up, and at some point they hit utter despair because they realized I can't do it. 
And so if you read this text, especially any text, but especially this one, through the lens of just, it's just about morality and your take home is, I just have to go home and be a good person. You're missing the point of what Jesus is trying to say. There's a, um, a book that Charles Dickens wrote called The Life of Our Lord. And don't write it down because I can't recommend it to you. Or if you do want to read it, I have to give you a huge caveat. It's an awesome book that he wrote for his kids so they would understand Christ. However, there's a part that he says, and he repeats it about a half dozen times. It's this beautiful telling of the story of Jesus and um, how wonderful he was and great he was and sacrificial he was. And it's great theology, except there's a handful of times he says, and if we are good, then we too will be with him for eternity. And I've heard enough Dick, or I've read, I should say, enough Dickens to just kind of spend some of his theology to know. I don't think he quite means it like that, but it's very dangerous to think if I'm just good enough. That's how some people have started to read this. And so, um, so what really happens is then it becomes about what I have done or what I am doing instead of what Christ has done, which is the essence of the gospel, what God has done through Jesus Christ. That's the hope that we have. So we had this good, be good thing, this moral way of looking at the Bible. And then the other one, I call it the good life or the American dream, which is, and think about this text in particular, to use the illustration to say, you've, you've got a house and you've built it. And now that you've come to faith in Christ, now you weren't a Christian, now you are a Christian. Now let's take the house and the life that you've already built and let's shove a foundation underneath it of Jesus and basically keep the same house. You ever, um, like, can you just imagine sitting there looking at a build, a house build, a home build that just happened, and just looking at the house and just going, something feels wrong. Did you, did you put the windows in? I put the windows in. Did you put the roof? I put the roof on. Did anybody put a foundation under this thing? Dave, that was your job. Did you put the foundation? No, Bill was, Bill, did you put a foundation? And if there's no foundation, then all of a sudden you go, oh no, we have to like start from scratch. And, but the way some people teach this is they say, God, has, you, you've got this idea of the American dream of what you want in the world. And now that you come to faith, keep all of that and try and just cram Jesus underneath it. Just try and have this foundation. It doesn't work. What Jesus does is we have this life. And then when we come to faith in him, oftentimes he wrecks us of going, that's what I thought was gonna be meaningful and fulfilling and life-giving. And now all of a sudden that I know Christ, we've gotta go, we're starting over. We're laying a new foundation, a new life, a new home. But this sells, doesn't it? Hey, here's the life you already want. Guess what? You sprinkle a little Jesus on, you'll get even more of what you want. You think that doesn't happen in the church of Jesus Christ today? There's one church in particular, I just picked one, I could have picked at least a dozen. And the pastor has written these books. Listen to the titles. You are stronger than you think. Unleash the power to go bigger, go bold, and go beyond what limits you. Empty out the negative. Make room for more joy, greater confidence, and new levels of influence. The abundance mindset, success starts here. Most of his books are based on a sermon series he has given. Think better, live better. A victorious life begins in your mind. It's your time. Becoming a better you. Your best life now. You know how many people listen to that every week? A church of 52,000 people. 
I was going to say, it's, it is a great way to build a church if you wanna go, hey, come on in here. And you know what, your life you have, I'm just gonna show you how Jesus is gonna just sort of make better all these things that you already want. But I can't say that's a good way to build a church. It's a decent way to build some kind of Christian-ish nonprofit that is masquerading as a church, that has a vague semblance of a church, but that is not the church. Don't email me. It's not the church. What we'll see is the gospel message is how we're supposed to read these things. We are not just coming together to go, I've already got my life. I just want it to be a little better. And I figured Jesus would help me do that. That is the American culture today. And it is not the biblical culture. This is when God calls you. I mentioned it, that sometimes he just wrecks our plans that we were doing one thing and then we, when we go, I trust you, you are my Lord. He just takes us and goes, great. You were building over here. Now we're going over here and we're building over here. I mean, if you start to think about some of the people, um, I mean, just in the gospel of Luke, what does he do? He goes to the disciples and then he goes, follow me. And what does it say they do? They leave everything. They go, well, that's the old me. And they go and they follow Christ. Or think about, um, think about Paul or Saul, he was called, when Saul was the greatest persecutor of Christians in the first century, the greatest persecutor of Christians. And then God gets a hold of him. Jesus meets him and says, why do you persecute me? And changes his life. And then he becomes the greatest missionary the world has ever known. You talk about having a life going one way and then God taking it the other way. That is radical transformation. And when you come to faith in Christ, it's my life is yours. Everything about me is yours. How do we read this text, a pretty popular text, through the actual lens of the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what he's done? You're gonna have to bear with me for a second because I gotta set something up. You might have noticed over the last several weeks as we've been talking about this, that it sounds a lot like something called, commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. It was a term that was um, spoken in the um, uh, third century. Augustine, I think, was the first one to say it. And then it sort of didn't really catch on for a while, but, it, but we can go back and see he's the first one to say it. The Sermon on the Mount. And we see the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and most of 7. And then there's this other one that sounds a lot like it that is in Luke chapter 6, and it takes about 60% of it. And you've got, um, so sometimes we call them the Sermon on the Mount, Augustine's term, and then something called the Sermon on the Plain, which I'll explain in just a minute. Not a, like a plane, like an airplane, like a plane, like a flat level of ground, all right? And the question is, is this two separate sermons that Jesus gives or is it one sermon? And there's good arguments for one sermon. If you'd asked me a week ago, I would have very firmly said I'm about 5149 saying that this is probably one sermon that Jesus gave. And Matthew's version of it, that even though it takes up 107 verses and Mark or Luke's gospel is only 30 verses, that what he did is he does what you would do if you leave here and you go to lunch with a friend, you might give somebody a long recitation of everything we talked about. And if you go to like your grandkid, you might go, uh, here's what he said. And you might sum it up and make it, you might just pick pieces of it. Well, Matthew's gospel is written to the Jews. So he's, he's saying the things that are important to them. Luke's gospel is written to the Greeks. And so it's possible that it's one sermon and it's, um, it's just written to two audiences. And so they didn't recap the entire thing. So there's not really any, any contradiction here. Um, some have said, you know, it starts, they both start with the Beatitudes. 
Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the blessed are the blessed are the blessed are the. It starts with those beatitudes. Both of them do. So it, it kind of looks like the same message. And they both end with this story that Jesus tells about the house built on the rock. Chronologically, they're in about the same time. And so if you look, it, it's kind of natural to go, this feels like the same sermon. Luke, um, Luke, Matthew's giving the full version and Luke is giving the version geared towards the Gentile audience because they wouldn't care about a lot of the other stuff. And it's possible. I'd say if you had to ask me today, I've shifted positions in about a week. You can tell I hold this really strongly. Now I'd be about 51, 49 the other way and tell you if I had to guess, I think this is actually two separate sermons that Jesus gives. One, the Sermon on the Mount, and a second one called the Sermon on the Plain. In Matthew's gospel, it says he went up to the high place and he began to teach. In Luke's gospel, it says he went to a flat place and he began to teach. It could be that you go up the mountain and there's a flat place on the top of the mountain. That's perfectly possible. It might be. But there's enough differences where I think probably what happened is he, um, is Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, big Sermon on the Mount, and then as he was leaving, some other people caught him and he gave a, um, a shorter version of that message to some of the followers. Now, in case you're asking who cares, which you wouldn't say that, but you might think it, um, I'll tell you why it matters. No, first of all, up until the 1500s, um, it was almost exclusively commonly understood that these were two separate sermons that Jesus gave. John Calvin in the 1500s gave a message and looked like, he, like, looked like he put them together and said they're the same sermon. And so especially in Protestant circles, we think it's one sermon that Jesus gave. Matthew gives the whole thing. Luke gives a part of it. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll share with you why this matters is because either way, either, either conclusion you come to, they have one thing in common that's especially important for today. If you haven't gotten what I've said, just tune back in for a moment, please. All right? You've got Matthew giving this sermon, and then you've got Luke giving one that's either identical to it or incredibly similar. And so what we can see is Jesus is basically saying the same things, either in one sermon recorded twice or two different times. And here's why that matters. Luke's sermon is shorter and Matthew's is longer. And so if we want to know what Jesus meant by the shorter version in Luke, we can go to Matthew's gospel to look and it will mean the same thing in Matthew's gospel that it does in Luke's gospel. All right? So the shorthand of all this is whether they're two separate ones or it's one big one, you can look at the other gospel and you can understand the message Jesus is giving by comparing it to the other gospel. So Matthew's gospel has more leading into this text that can show us what Jesus meant about building your uh, house on the rock, not the sand. So let me show you that and we'll tie this all together, hopefully, I promise. Matthew chapter seven. What Matthew's going to say is going to help us interpret Luke because he starts, uh, he gets a running start to lead into this. And here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, this is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you, 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What does he seem to be talking about? It seems clear from here that what he's talking about is the judgment of God. He's saying that there is going to be a day that someone is going to stand before God and he is going to issue, <clears throat> excuse me, judgment. And then what does it say? Then notice what he does next. It just says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. So what Jesus is doing in this sermon is he's talking about the, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the ultimate judgment and justice of God that is coming for everybody. And then he says, let me explain to you how to avoid this. How do, how, do you, how do you suffer the judgment? How do you avoid it? Everyone who hears the words of mine, listen to this and, and think about the scripture that was just read. This is Matthew's gospel. Who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and listen to this language and pretend you were, a, you were Jewish in the first century. What imagery would start coming to mind? The rain fell. The floods came. The winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. What is flood language to a first century Jew? It's Noah. It's the judgment of God on the earth for sin. This is what he's talking about. And so if you look at this, it's very, very similar language to Luke. So go back to Luke's gospel in 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do what I tell you? When I was, um, I was in high school and um, I, a buddy of mine, I blatantly needed co um, uh, community service hours. So we went and we, we said, let's go coach basketball at the YMCA. And so we did. I, I have to say, I don't recall doing like a background check or anything, I just went in and said, we'll, we'll teach the children. And they went, what's your name? And you know, they wrote it down and we were in, that was it. And so we did. So me and my high school buddy went and we, um, and we, uh, we coached this team and we were really, really good, but it was really because we had one good player. And um, I noticed something about this player. I was the coach, People would, the kids would come to me and I'd go, hey, um, next time this happens, can you do this? And they'll go, okay. And they go back and they start to play. And then everybody except this one kid, no matter what I told them to do, they would, do, they would just go back and do the exact opposite. Except this one kid. This one kid was good. He was this big kid. He was a head taller than everybody else. Our whole, I mean, he's like eight years old. Our whole play is he would stand like this and just shoot and rebound. All the other little kids would be jumping up to get the ball and they couldn't get it. This one guy would, this one guy would do it. And there was something different about him besides he was a head taller than everybody else. Um, what was different about him is I would say, his name was Prince. And I said, Prince, when, you, um, when this happens, you do it like this, don't do it like this. And he would go, okay, coach. And he would go and he would do exactly what I told him to do. And I'm watching this kid. I'm like, man, he is, he is listening to what I'm saying. He's a good, he's like seven, eight years old. He's a good athlete too for this kid. And, and I've told some of you this before, but his name was Prince and his last name was Fielder. And if you're a baseball fan, this kid went on to play in the major leagues. He was a good athlete. I take full credit for all his athleticism. <laughs> it's all me. You're welcome if you're a fan. But the thing I noticed about him, besides he was so good, is he was the only one on the team that the coach tried to coach him, and he would go, yes, coach. Maybe because his dad was 
Cecil Fielder, who was a player in the bigs on the Tigers, I think, for most of his career. And, um, and maybe he taught him that, I don't know. But I remember thinking, this kid's good, and he listens. He's going to go places. Just had no idea how far he was going to go. But I wanted to look at all the other kids and go, why do you call me coach and not let me coach you? Or think about if I were to, um, like a teenager that might go, you, you call me friend, and then you go and you gossip about me, but you call me friend? Those two things don't go together. Or if my wife were to go, you, you call me your wife, but you don't treat me as special. You don't treat me with tenderness and affection and love. You call, you call me your child, dad, but you treat me just like everybody else. You treat me like all the other kids. Wouldn't that be a disconnect? It should be. And Jesus is saying, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? If we call him Lord, something is required of us. And it is obedience. That's what he calls us to. So why don't we obey? Why don't we do the hard work of digging deep like he's talking about and really obeying Jesus is because it's hard. It's much easier to just give some lip service and then not have to worry about your life changing anyway. It's much easier to just say, Lord, Lord, and then not do what he says, but that's not what he calls us to. In fact, in America, it's been, and I'm gonna say relatively easy compared to the rest of the world. It's been relatively easy to be a Christian compared to the rest of the world. And a lot of us, I'm 46, and there's a lot of us that have lived where it was really easy. In fact, it was sort of celebrated depending on where you live and all that. And then all of a sudden, now it's kind of the opposite. But at the end of the day, like I don't really feel like I'm called to a martyr's death over my faith. Other stuff might happen. I don't know, I might lose my job. We might get shut down. I don't know what would happen. But right now, compared to the rest of the world, the sacrifice that I'm being called to in obedience is not near what he was calling those first Christians to. Now people might call us evil. We might have to realize that what we're building our life on is really the foundation of the American dream in our own life, the good life that we want, instead of Jesus Christ and a life surrendered to him. That may come up. The verbal expression of this is the first part. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? He's not saying don't. He's saying that's the thing you're supposed to do. You're supposed to call me Lord. But when you call me Lord, obedience follows that. In January, we're gonna have the baptistry right here. We're gonna have two young ladies in high school that are gonna be baptized. And they're gonna be here in front of everybody and they're gonna say, Jesus is my Lord. And what I have told them as I've met with them is to say, now you understand that this is called, I was prepping for this, so they, were, they got it. I got an earful. Um, that what he's calling you to is not just keep doing everything you're doing and say he's Lord and don't change. If you were saying Jesus is my Lord, then obedience follows. And so we say Jesus is my Lord and what they used to understand is obedience, and we should as well. And here's what he says. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. And he's gonna use some stories, which is brilliant because we love stories and we remember stories. No kid crawls up into daddy's lap and goes, oh, father, could you please just tell me some facts? Do you have any data that I could learn? Mom, do you have a spreadsheet we could go over together, please? Nothing like that happens. But they go, tell me a 
story. And that's what Jesus does. Everyone who comes to me, hears my words and does them. I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. This is um, in Israel around the Sea of Galilee. The surface right by it was really rock hard during the summer. And so you could throw a house up there and give the impression that it's going to be just fine until it's a few months later and it starts getting cold and then the house like bends because the sand just starts moving. And so wise builders knew you had to dig down deep for the foundation. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell And listen to this language. You think about this is the judgment of God that's one day coming. The ruin of that house was great. Life without Christ has one outcome, he says. It is ruin. Now, I, because I'm basically a little boy in a 46-year-old man's body, I like to make sandcastles when I go to the beach. And I I ain't messing around with little sandcastles. I like to make impregnable fortresses of sandcastles. Like my kids were little and Nikki had to go, why don't you let the kids build a sandcastle with you? And I was like, no, they'll mess it up. This is my sandcastle. And so I would make sandcastles and they were awesome. And I would build them and I I had two two values in my mind. Um, It had to look awesome and I wanted to get back far enough where the water's not gonna hit it, but I'm also lazy and I didn't wanna have to run too far to get the water and put the water on it. So I tried to find just that balance between and I learned that the hard way because one of the first times, I I was like an adult at this time. I don't know how this happened. I, I went, I put it right down by the water and then I could build it, and it was awesome, and it was, like, it was like maybe 30 feet tall. I don't remember exactly. It was huge. I built this thing, and then I got water. You put the water on it, and then I remember like, I'm gonna go, I think I said I'm gonna go tell my wife, like, Nikki, I'm gonna go show Nikki what I did, and I get her, and I come back, and by the time I had come back, it was already gone, and I was like straight up distraught, and I'm like, no, I promise it was right here. Look, you can still see the remnants of it, And what had happened was my beautiful, impregnable fortress made of sand, what happened? A little bit of water. Got a little higher, a little higher, and then it was gone. One who hears the word of God and doesn't do it is like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The stream broke, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. One tiny wrong wave hits it and it's down. We talk about the judgment of God, we immediately go, how's that part of the gospel? Like, how is that any kind of good news? But we know that justice is good. I mean, do we want justice for for the oppressed? Of course. Do we want justice for the poor? Of course. Do we want racial justice? Of course we do. Do we want justice for evil people in the world? Of course we do. Of course we do. We, We want justice in the world. The problem is even me saying that word, it has so much baggage that's associated with it now. We want the justice of our good, benevolent, sovereign God. And that's what he promises. So one thing is just to be encouraged today to know the people that may seem to be against you right now that make it hard for you to live out your faith, the judgment of God is coming. And if they have a hard heart and they turn from him, the judgment of God is coming. Now, our hope and prayer, so we don't have to wait on that, that even the people that wound us the most, that hurt us the most, that they might come to know Jesus Christ as we have and to be able to avoid that. 
The point of it is this. Let me, let me try and be really, really clear. The rock that he's saying to build on is not our good works. If you read it, it could sound like that. The one who um, does what I say, build on that foundation. Really what he's saying is the only immovable rock we have is Jesus Christ and our faith in him. But the faith that we have always follows, is always followed by our obedience, by our works. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate here, that we obey him even to the death is what he's calling them to and what he's calling us to. The faith that Jesus recognizes is the one that says, Lord, Lord, and then it's let me show you that you are Lord by what I do. That's the faith that he's talking about. It's that God has made a way that we put our trust in Christ. All right, let me try and sum it up like this. The judgment of God is good, it's coming, and it's transferable. Here's what I mean by that. I already said why it's good. We need some kind of justice in the world and we have a good, uh, loving God that is able to administer that justice. Woo, that's a load off. It's coming. We can act like it's not. We can say it's not. It can feel like it's not, but the reality is it is. That's the promise of Jesus. And then the justice of God is, and this is the best word I could come up with, is transferable. I had the word avoidable. I don't know if that's a better word. Maybe that helps you. But the idea is the justice and judgment that you and I deserve, the hammer that should fall on us instead fell to Christ. That is the good news. The ESV study Bible has a note that just says confession without obedience is worthless. This is not about our works saving us. If it was just about being really good people, Jesus would have loved the Pharisees. Oh man, they kept the Old Testament law and then some. And what does he do? He comes in and he says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you to the Pharisees because they'd missed the whole spirit and the heart behind the law. We have actual biblical faith in Christ demonstrated by our works. Let me give you my go-to quote and my go-to illustration about faith and works. It is Martin Luther once said, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone something you need to remember. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Meaning, um, faith is what saves us, but works always accompany the faith that we have in Christ. That's how we demonstrate saving faith in him. And if we do, and if we have that, then when judgment day hits, God looks at us and says, my judgment on you has already fallen on Jesus Christ. What a glorious thing that is. And the illustration I like to use is this. This uh, key opens something. My mailbox. This opens my mailbox at my house. And so if you want to know how do I get in my mailbox, all I do is I take this one key and I go over and I put it in. None of these other keys are going to open it or I can't and open it. It is this one key and that's it that opens my mailbox. That's what I need to access the mailbox. However, wherever this key goes, all the other keys go with it. What puts us in right relationship with Jesus? Faith. But the kind of faith we have, our works always follow and go with it everywhere it goes. We went to a, um, went to a, uh, a conference this uh, last couple days. I went with some people at Rockland. There was a, a picture of us, and um, there was a guy who spoke, and uh, he was in a gang, and he shared the, his story. He didn't grow up in church. He grew up in gangs. And he told us all about the gang culture. And um, uh, we were all going to learn about discipleship and how to, how to deepen discipleship in the church. And um, 
And one of the things he said was he said he was a young man and another, an older guy came to him and he said he put a gun in his hand to say, you're a part of the gang. And he said, I knew exactly what he was telling me to do. That I am now saying I am willing to die for these people. I'm signing on to the death. Praise God. God has a great story. God got a hold of him. And now here he is speaking at a conference to try and tell churches how to disciple people. God had done a, a complete 180 in his life. It was a great, fantastic story to hear. I won't do it justice if I try and repeat it. But if you look at what happened when Christ called us, if you look at the rest of Luke's gospel, you see what he calls us to? It's a call to come and die. It's a call to take up your cross and follow him. We need to make sure we have our faith framed correctly, that we reframe it where we don't say, this is about just being, being really, 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 really good. That's a recipe for despair. Nor is it about just, I've already got everything that I want and now Jesus is gonna help me get it. That's the American dream. That's not in the Bible. This is Christ has rescued me and now everything in me says, I long to serve him and live in obedience to him. This is, he ends the greatest sermon or sermons ever given, the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. He ends them, but he starts out, blessed are the poor, and then he ends by going, obey, by saying, go do the things that I'm calling you to do. There's people here every week that are always looking for a church. Let me tell you one of the number one things to look for in a church. Make sure you have a pastor and you have leaders that will stand up and will call you at the end of the sermon to say, obey. Not just to make you feel good. Not just to go, let me give you the life that you've already got and just maybe make it a little better, but to say, obey God Almighty. If you call him Lord, Lord, follow him. Do what he says. It was interesting, this man I referred to earlier that spoke also said, he said, I'm kind of glad I didn't grow up in the church because some of the people that grew up in the church don't really realize what they were saved from. And he said, I do. I do. 